Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. I'm glad you're able to join us today on another day of isolation. Hope you're all staying safe and are comfortable at the same time. Uh, I'm Drew DeGrotto, your host, and let me bring in the panelists. Stephen, good to see you. How are you doing in isolation? Doing okay. I mean, uh, going a little stir crazy, but uh, nothing, nothing too bad yet. I noticed. Look at Scott over there. How are you doing, Scott? Good to see you today. Our program director, Scott Sonson. I am really looking forward to going to Sam's Club today. <laughs> you know it's bad when... Phrases you never thought you would say. <laughs> Jonathan, good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's good to see you guys. Scott, are you going with your mask today? Are you going to be wearing your mask? Yes, yes. Catherine, the governor wants us to wear masks. And so um, I, nobody else around here is. But I've been, And Catherine Bishop made me a really, really nice. I mean, it's handcrafted, well-made. Uh, improves my looks a lot because they're more covered <laughs> up. But it's got a... It's like, I, I start wearing it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually put my scarf on last night. I said, let me see what a scarf looks like, wrapping it around twice. Uh, it just didn't look – didn't. so then I, we were able to get some masks, and I got my mask now, so I'll be wearing that. I want to go to my bank with my mask on. Yeah, right? Well, you can't even get in your bank. In fact, our, our bank, one of them said uh, you can come into the lobby, but by appointment only. All right, we're digressing, but we're we're sharing some of the – frustration that we're all facing in this crisis that we are facing together. What better way, though, to spend the day here for the next 45 minutes or so, talking about a very uh, challenging passage. Uh, before I, I get into that, though, if you're coming in on our Zoom app, we should we want you to open up the Q&A box or the chat window and, and give us your comments and thoughts as we're going through it. If you're watching us on the Facebook page, Scott's Facebook page, use the, the comment box there. and We'll be monitoring them, uh, both, both areas. But we're going to be uh, – we, we kind of set the table last week with uh, First Peter, uh, and now today we want to get into the meat of it, the actual challenging – uh, um, part of the scripture that Peter talks about is in chapter 3, primarily around verses 18, 19, and 20. So, Scott, uh, why don't you bring in the, 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 the topic? All right. So the text we're going to be looking at is this year, and I've put Young's literal translation up here because really some of the translations here or there have some translations that aren't necessarily very good. This sometimes happens when you have a difficult text. And uh, sometimes the translators will try to help us out by tilting it this way or that. And so I've gone with Young's literal. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Scott, are you saying even the scholars and the translators have a difficulty with this passage? Well, uh, they may or may not feel that they do. Um, some of the translators may feel very, very confident about their interpretation. But as we go through here, we'll notice several areas in which people interpret things different ways. And so I'm going to just use kind of as a basis here to start with uh, Young's Literal. And um, uh, by the way, if you, Blue Letter Bible, I really recommend that site. 
just for the tools, not necessarily for the articles and such that you would read. But you can look at you can look at Young's literal there. You can look at the interlinear a lot of other things. All right. So somebody just read this text for us here. Uh, I've changed one word in Young's literal. Um, he translated disbelieved. Most translations put like uh, something along the idea of disobedient, and I think that's actually better. So would somebody please read this text for us? I go with that. Or go ahead, Jonathan. All right. Yeah. Um, because Christ, also Christ, once, once for sin did suffer, righteous for unrighteous, that he might lead us to God, having been put to death indeed in the flesh, and having been made alive in the spirit, in which also the spirits in prison have gone, having gone, he did preach, who sometime disbelieved or disobedient, uh, when once the long suffering of God did wait in the days of Noah. It's kind of tricky reading Young's literal because he does it very literally and it doesn't flow as well. We missed one word in there, I think. It's in which also to the spirits in prison, having gone, he did preach, who sometime disbelieved, etc. All right. So in particular here, we're looking at this part, being put to death, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirit in prison, ESV. Uh, last week we looked, we're just going to do this super briefly, broadly at First Peter and then later we're going to be getting here into the immediate thing. Broadly in First Peter, you've got suffering and glory. See all those blue texts? Look at the glory in that. See all those red texts? See all the suffering in that. Overall is this large calling and obligation to be holy. Be holy as he would call you as holy. And if, when you look at the highlighted parts of these suffering texts, uh, suffered in the flesh, it's, you see speak against you, slandered, insulted, etc., malign you, uh, keep watching for that. And then, of course, here's all these hopes and blessings. Uh, so that's the broad thing. We looked at that last time. So now starting through here, Christ also suffered once for sins. We know what that means when Jesus died on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Isaiah 53, you know, he who is the innocent one, who there was no uh, deceit on his tongue or whatever, he died for the wicked. And of course, why did he do it? That he might bring us to God. So he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this is where we hit our first questions of interpretation. What does it mean? And, and I'm, Stephen's going to be putting up some slides in a few minutes where he's going to be presenting what he believes is a correct interpretation of the text. But we'll mention here some of the other things. What are some things that some people think it means here made alive in the spirit? After he's uh, resurrected from the grave? All right, and I think a lot of people would, would agree with that. Jesus was put to death, and, and he was resurrected. I mean, it's one of the main things in the New Testament, the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, but that, that he was made alive in the Spirit, that's after his resurrection, after he came out of the grave. Right. Yeah. The, the resurrection would be afterwards. Uh, another way to look at it would be, and some people do, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, while his flesh is dead, but his spirit is alive. So for instance, in Luke, he commends his 
spirit to God. Um, he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. With me in paradise. Uh, there are some people, there's some Calvinists that say that Jesus went to hell. Uh, Luke 24, Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, could it be that Jesus during the three days went to paradise with the, the saved thief and then makes a proclamation to some spirits in prison at that point, conceivable. Um, uh, but let's continue with the text and, and look at some other possibilities too. Also, by the way, put the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, well, I'm not even gonna get into what they say about this text. All right, so the Kings, New King James and King James have made alive by the Spirit, and they capitalize at the S here. Of course, in the Greek manuscripts, it's not an issue of capitalized or not. So that's merely interpretation. The translator has to choose whether to put a capital S or a small S. If I was a translator, I would probably cheat in a pair of <laughs> sometimes <laughs> put a medium size S. Hey, which one? Uh, New King James, King James went with by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Um, Texas Receptus does have an article there that earlier manuscripts don't. Um, but the, and both of these cases are, it's just a dative without a proposition and a dative without a proposition. Uh, I was maybe going to make an argument on that for them being parallel, but Jeff said that sometimes Greek can do things like that. So I'm going to skip that argument and move forward. American standard or bias standard, new American standard, ESV all have in the spirit. So King James has by the Holy Spirit, by the capital S, these all have in the Spirit. And the NIV, interestingly, has in the capital S Spirit. Any comments on that before we move ahead? I, I'm, I'm going to be hitting some of the technical things of the phrases and possibilities, and then Stephen's going to help us look through interpretation. Any comments here before we move forward? All right. Um, Next, made alive. So is this meaning as he died on the cross, his physical body dies, but he's kept alive in his spirit and he goes and does doing something in the spiritual realm, like to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise on his spirit is committed to God. Or does it mean resurrected at, at his resurrection? So, this word is used several times in the New Testament. The Father raises the dead and gives them life. It is the Spirit who gives life. Uh, God gives life to the dead. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. As an atom all dies, so in Christ all will be made alive. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Letter kills, the spirit gives life. I forgot to highlight that one. If a law had been given, that could give life. So not always, but usually here, or often here, this word is referring to the life at what particular point? The resurrection. Yeah, the resurrection. And so if that's what this means here, put to death in the flesh, but uh, uh, resurrected, uh, and then maybe... Uh, the, the NIV does have in the spirit, the capital S, the, the Holy Spirit is involved in um, the uh, resurrection. 
uh, Romans chapter eight, if the spirit of him that raised up Christ is in you, then you'll have life in your mortal bodies, etc. Uh, this word is not a similar word. This is a very similar word, but it's a different word. Uh, they both have life in it, but then they've got a different compound uh, verb here. And this has to do with more keeping alive. That is not the word Peter uses here. He uses the word this more often, give life, translated here, made alive. But this word can also have the idea of preserving life. Because back in the Septuagint, there in Nehemiah, O Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth and everything in there, and you preserved them. So it can have the idea of preserving life. So we're just looking at possibilities here. We'll get into interpretation more in a minute. Any comments on that before we go ahead? All right. Thanks for keeping now, the discussion alive. Pardon? Thanks for keeping the discussion alive. Okay. Ah, there we go. <laughs> um, uh, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is not the word euangelizo, which is, uh, there's two common words in the New Testament for preach. One is this word, which has gospel right in it. Uh, it's to kind of like evangelize, to preach the gospel. It's what's used in Romans 1, 15, um, where it's, Paul says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. And there's another word, very often, usually used of preaching the gospel, but it doesn't have the word gospel in it. It's a proclamation and a herald. First on this word, if somebody can open to Romans 8 and just read the examples of being used in verse 12, 25, 35, and 40. This is the word that's not used right here. Uh, you mean Acts chapter 8? Yes, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. And just the phrase, you don't have to read the whole verses. 12, 25, 35, and 40. In uh, Acts 8, 12. Uh, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God. And in 25. verse 25. Uh, when they testified, spoken to the word of the Lord, that they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages. And 35. That's not, in English, preaching the gospel. In Greek, it's just one word, this word here. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news, is the way the ESV translates that one word. And verse 40. Uh, but Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay, so that's the, the word that includes the gospel in the thing. And the reason why this is kind of important is we're going to be looking at, is this proclamation to the spirits in prison, is it made by Jesus during this three days, or was it done in the spirit of Christ through Noah back before? Um, if it's something that happened during these three days, it's notable that the word is not declaring good news to them, but making a proclamation of some sort. If it's something within the three days, we're not told what that proclamation is. Uh, if it's during the preaching of Noah, well, we can see uh, what that would be in a minute here when Stephen gets to the slides he's going to be presenting. But for right now, let's just look at this word. So it's not that word. It's this word. Keruso. This is about as common. It's 61 times in the New Testament. It's often translated preach. It means to proclaim, to herald, to publish. In the New Testament, it is usually used of proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel. 
Mark 1, 4, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, Timothy is told. Yet it can also be used in a sense like in Galatians 5, 11. If I still preach circumcision, or in Romans 2, you that preach a person shouldn't steal. So it can be a proclamation generally. Now here's what's kind of interesting. How does Peter use these words here in 1 Peter? He uses this proclamation word here, but elsewhere he uses this gospelized word. 1 Peter 1.12, those that preached the gospel to you. 1 Peter 1.25, the gospel is preached to you. That's all this one word right here. For this cause, the gospel was preached to them that are dead. This one word right here. Peter never uses this word, keruso, in 1 Peter, except right here, this proclamation. Now, it is used, the noun form it is used in 2 Peter. So keruso, this proclaim, herald, publish, is not used elsewhere in 1 Peter, the thing that was done here with these spirits, but the noun, Kerus, which is from Keruso, kind of like farmer and farm, okay? Uh, it's from Keruso, is used in 2 Peter 2.5. Somebody read that text there for us, please. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world, of the ungodly. What translation is that? I don't know, because I'm, I'm caught by the phrase, the eighth person there. I'm not sure which translation I clicked from. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, I won't, I'll try to figure and it I'm out. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have uh, dice, uh, distracted you on that. I should have looked at that before I pasted it in. All right. That, this word is only used three times in the New Testament. The other two times, it has to do with a gospel preacher and an apostle. Uh, I was ordained a preacher and an apostle two times in those other two texts. So this is the word used here, proclaim, which can be used to the preaching of uh, in the noun form of Noah or a gospel preacher. Go ahead, Stephen. That is the KJV that you copied from. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, so here's our text, and we're about to switch over to Stephen. Uh, Christ also once for our sins did suffer, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might lead us to God, having indeed been put, having been put to death indeed in the flesh, having been made alive in the spirit, in which also to the spirits in prison, having gone, he did preach, who sometime disbelieved, other translation disobedient, were once, uh, when once the long suffering of Noah did wait in the days of Noah. Last point I'm going to make here is on this phrase right here, because the key ESV, which I like a lot, put because right there, because they didn't formally obey. That's not what this word means. Uh, this word, I don't think that's a very good translation. Um, if you look at this uh, word here, it's uh, at some time or other, formally, before time, now at length, now at length which is why other translations say things like the American Standard has who, I think it was who aforetime were or something like that. So get back to literal who sometime disbelieved. All right, uh, Stephen, how about you pick up from there? All right, well, um, I'll just go ahead and say uh, with this passage, it, this is a tough passage as you've already pointed out and I am by no means dogmatic 
on my view of the passage. Um, I'm not even hackmatic on it. it it has entertained me sometimes to talk about uh at the end of second peter when peter says that paul wrote some things that are hard to understand i say look at the look at the pot calling the kettle black (laughs) (laughs) because because peter wrote one of the hardest things that peter wrote uh to understand i'm going to share my screen here briefly with you um and here we go can y'all see that all right yeah okay so we're i'm going to run through this I, I, we were studying through first peter in a community study recently and uh, it there were some things that jumped out to me in the text that i hope will help us work through this one of the most important questions we can ask when interpreting a passage is what is the context and the occasion of the passage first peter as scott has already well outlined is about suffering and glory And we see that in the context of this paragraph that's hard to interpret. In 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, he talks about suffering for righteousness' sake. Who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And so the instruction being given in this section is suffer righteously. And then at the end of this, in verse uh, 17, he says, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then starting in verse 18, he turns to the example of Jesus. And he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. So you suffer for doing what's good. Now look to Jesus. He suffered. And in this paragraph that we're looking at, it walks through some of the things that happened to Jesus. He suffered. Um, He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Again, depending on what that means, possibly referring to his resurrection. He he suffers. He dies for sure. And his resurrection is definitely referenced at the end of this paragraph. In verse 21, after talking about baptism, it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the end of verse 21. Then verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this paragraph sees Jesus suffering, death, resurrection, and glorification. We can see that as the example in this passage. What's notable to me is how this passage flows into chapter four. I had not really thought about this before, but in four, one, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so he says, you need to use Christ as your example and endure suffering because glory is coming. That's really the big message of of 1 Peter. So as we try to piece this together, in this paragraph, I think we have three parallel pictures that are being connected in, in very few words. And again, there may be troubles with some of this, so please bear with me. This is the best way I've found so far to put this together. We see Jesus suffering in his life. One of the ways in which Jesus suffered is he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus came to wicked people and preached to them, and in response, they persecuted and eventually killed Jesus. This is, this is what we know from the story of Jesus. He suffered, and in doing so, paid for our sins. Uh, he was put to death in the flesh. 
buried, and then he's made alive in the spirit. I'm taking this to be the reference to resurrection. Uh, Scott, you have a comment? Uh, yeah, just that uh, we noted before the references to maligned and speaking against you that's going to be again in chapter 4. One of the ways Jesus suffered back in verse 23 of chapter 2 was he was reviled. So certainly it's pointed out about its death, but one of the things that's repeated here was the, the idea of people speaking against you. And besides, of course, much, much worse was the, the physical torture and, and the death. But these people are going through being reviled, and it's pointed out that Jesus was reviled in that too. Go ahead. Yes, that's right. They're suffering shame, like like Jesus, their Lord, did. Yeah. So if we take this passage to be the idea of there's some parallel between what happened to Jesus and what happened with Noah. If we think back to Noah's day, perhaps the idea here is that Jesus in the spirit is preaching through Noah. This is what Peter brings up in chapter one. We referenced this before, but I want to just touch back on this again. In first Peter one, verse 10 Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. We know that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets when they predicted what was going to happen, both the suffering and the glory of Jesus. So, so here's Noah now, and perhaps the spirit of Christ in him. And there are these spirits in Noah's day. Perhaps we can refer to these as spirits in prison, in bondage to sin in some sense. I realize that is an unusual expression, but perhaps this is the idea. And so Jesus, through Noah, makes proclamation. We've already noted that in 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is called a proclaimer of righteousness or a herald of righteousness. It's the same, it's the, the noun form of the word here. It says he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That would fit with Noah being the proclaimer, the spirit of Jesus proclaiming through them. And we know just from the fact that only eight people were saved is that Noah was met with rejection. That message was not accepted by the, the majority. I mean, only his family was saved in the ark. And so what happened? God sent a flood and wiped out the world of the ungodly. But he spared Noah and his family, the construction of the ark, and they are brought through the water and they are saved in this same event. In the same event, the world is judged and the righteous are saved. And perhaps this is the same idea. Jesus is proclaiming in Noah. He is also being rejected in Noah. And then the flood is a symbol of what happens to us in baptism. So that brings us to us and, and also to the people in Peter's day who were suffering. It's notable to me that as they are reaching out, he several times in the letter talks about the idea of people seeing their good works that they're proclaiming, they're giving a defense for their hope, and they're trying to get people to turn to Jesus. But he tells them, 
they're going to be surprised. This is First uh, Peter 4 and verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, this is not the same word that's usually used for like Noah's flood. It's a word that means an overflow or an excess. Some translations say excess of debauchery there. But it's is interesting it, to me. Is it the ESV that translates it flood of debauchery? Se- several translations use flood of debauchery. The ESV uses flood. I think most translations use flood. There's a few that use excess. Okay. Um, but the idea of the word is a flowing over. An overflow is the idea of the word. It can be translated flood. So the idea here is that here are these Christians in the world preaching the gospel. The world is surprised that you're not following them and they malign you. They revile you. There's this rejection that we've seen both with Jesus and with Noah. And then he says that baptism corresponds to the salvation that was given to Noah as he and his family were brought through the water. You know, what's interesting to me is it's been pointed out to me that I've always thought of the flood, like Noah and his family were saved from the flood by the ark. But there's really a sense in which Noah and his family were saved by the flood from the world of ungodliness. And God is wiping out the sinful world and saving Noah. Now the ark did save them from the flood, but the flood was what was saving them from the world. And baptism corresponds to this, we're told. It is by baptism that we're saved. And I'd like to come back to this because I know our viewer who raised this question specifically wanted us to comment on the connection between baptism and salvation. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you to notice in in 1 Peter 3.21, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting is how all three pictures are kind of brought in parallel with each other in verse 21. Jesus died and rose from the dead. Noah was saved from the wicked world through the waters of the flood. We are saved from our own wickedness and from the wicked world in the waters of baptism, which connects us with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these three pictures, I I think the interpretation that says Jesus is preaching through Noah, proclaiming through Noah, makes sense in the context of saying, look, you be like Jesus, you be like Noah, resist the flood of debauchery that's all around you, proclaim to them, preach to them, but remember that you've been brought out of that uh, through baptism. Baptism has saved you and it connects you with the resurrection of Jesus. Um, So this is (laughs) one way of putting this together. I realize it doesn't answer every nuance and every question. Do y'all have thoughts or comments on this, on the way of putting this together? I think that that really makes a lot of sense uh, in looking at that. Like we've already said, this is difficult to understand. What's the, what's the proclaiming? What's the preaching? And, and who is it to? And my question in verse 19 of 1 Peter um, 3 is, is, what would be the purpose of the preaching or the proclaiming 
to the spirits that are in prison. Um, this, this model that, that Stephen put together, I, I think, uh, kind of helps answer that. If, if Jesus was preaching to the, to the spirits that are in hell that have already rejected God, um, they, well, what opportunity for repentance is there? And it reminds me, I don't know if this is a fair um, comparison, but it reminds me of the story that Jesus tells of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man dies, he's placed in, in torment, uh, and Lazarus is uh, placed in uh, paradise in Abraham's bosom. And Lazarus asks for for forgive or for uh, for mercy, and it's denied him in that moment. Um, I don't know if that's an exact parallel to what's going on here, maybe in First Peter, but it makes sense to me talking about the spirit of Christ being manifested and Noah's preaching back in his day, just like Jesus is rejected, just like Noah's rejected, and just like us is rejected. Um, that, this graphic is really helpful for me, I think, Stephen, and, and maybe seeing the flow of the context of that there. So it's not certainly not a perfect explanation. Uh, there's still some questions there. I do think you're right, Jonathan, that we have to be careful. I do not, whatever your interpretation of this text is, I don't believe that the, the preaching or proclaiming is a second chance for those who've already died. I don't think that's what this text is teaching. The other te- scriptures that we have that are clearer in scripture that you've already mentioned, like Luke 16 and other places, indicate that we die once and then comes judgment. There's not a second chance after we die to then repent and to be rescued again. Scott? I was going to see if Drew had a comment, and then I've got a couple of comments, and then I think you've got a little bit more material to go through here in a minute. Drew, did you have something? I just I find it interesting. Uh, this is a difficult passage. It's one small two or three passages that seem to grab everybody, and I can't say everybody, but seems to grab a lot more attention on what it's trying to say or not saying than the overall message of salvation, of, of what our responsibility is and, and what Christ has done. And that's the bigger picture throughout the entire New Testament. And so I, I guess I'm guilty of this too. I'll look at a passage and I'll try to look at what it's making and I spend much time trying to analyze or figure it out. But really, there's if it's something that I you can't get your, your, your head around of it, let's look at the, the whole picture. And what's Peter really trying to say? And I think uh, your, 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 your chart there, Stephen, helps a lot in putting that together for that purpose. Also, Stephen, you mentioned something that's really, I think, a, an important principle. When you've got a passage that might be a little ambiguous and you're not sure, does it mean this or this or this or this or this? If you've got clear passages that state not this, you can eliminate that one. Like, for example, this is a favorite proof text of the Jehovah's Witness. I'm not going to go into detail about this, but Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that the crucified body of Jesus Christ ever rose from the dead. They believe he died. At that point, he ceased to exist. And that crucified body never lived and breathed again. At the resurrection, they think Jesus was merely a spirit, not a fleshly person, not his previous body. And this is one of their main proof texts. He was put to death in the flesh, yeah. but raised in the spirit. spirit. And so they say, see, he's going through rooms without a, uh, you know, in a locked door and everything. He's not in a body. Well, Luke 24, it says, look, flesh and bones. <laughs> I'm not a spirit. Uh, but this is the passage they use. If this was the only passage we had, that could conceivably be the meaning. 
Yet we've got other passages where Jesus says, look at me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see me having. And then what did he show them? He asked them to, and he even asked them to touch, touch him. Yeah, let Thomas feel the nail holes, you know. So that, that's an important principle to remind. When you look at passage, well, maybe it means this. Maybe. But if another passage says, nope, you can rule that one out. He even asked um, to have breakfast with him one time. TJ has a comment here. Interesting chart. That makes that explanation easy to understand. I have no about this, but could the spirits in prison be the people that are not dead in Jesus's time? In the text, it talks about those that were aforetime disobedient in, in the days of Noah. So we've got some reference back there to the days of Noah. Um, it could be that um, the, the new American standard adds a word uh, tr to favor actually this basic interpretation, but making the spirits in prison be the, the spirits now in prison who were not in prison back then. The new American standard adds the word now, went and preached to the spirits now in prison. That's why you see it in italics. It's not there in the Greek. Let me throw out the chance that that type of thing could be correct. If, if I say President Lincoln was born in a log cabin. True or not? Say that again. True. President Lincoln was born in a log cabin. True. Yeah. Was he President Lincoln when he was born in the log cabin? <laughs> not yet. It's not, it's not parallel, but just, just to illustrate an idea. There is, and I want to get this in real quick because I think Stephen has just a little bit more. There are also some ideas that in other Jewish writings, there were prevalent ideas uh, in some writings about fallen angels being the sons of God in Genesis 6. I'm not saying they are, but there were people that felt that way. And there are references in the New Testament to beliefs, uh, to, to documents and stuff in, in uh, historical sense of things circulating in Jewish writings. Just one to mention, remember when in Timothy it talks about the Egyptian musicians, Janus and Jambres? Mm -hmm. yep. Those names are not found in scripture, but they're in other uh, Jewish writings. Jonathan, and then back to Steve. Um, and so TJ clarifying her question, I think she said, uh, is other words, uh, or in other words, why do people assume the spirits in prison mean people in hell? Um, I, I think that that comes from the idea, uh, when you read the text really quickly, um, it seems to be talking about Jesus proclaiming all throughout. So he's proclaiming um, before, he's proclaiming, he, he was reviled whenever he was living, um, and he's proclaiming whenever he's in the grave, and then proclaiming uh, after he, he came from his resurrection. Um, this model kind of shows that that may not be the case talking about Jesus. It may be talking about like what Stephen pointed out from chapter one, verse 11, um, that this is referring back to Noah's preaching. And again, similar, um, the, the term is used in second Peter chapter two, that Noah was a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. I think people assume the spirits in prison have to mean people in hell because they put it chronologically in the text as Jesus is proclaiming while he's in the grave and so he's going to preach to those spirits that are that are uh, have died and gone to torment. Um, I, think, I, I don't know if you guys have a better answer, but I don't know if you were bringing this up in your chart. But um, we're 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 spirit, right? We're beings, but we're also beings of spirit. And if I'm not a child of God, I'm still spirit, but I'm I'm also dead, right? I'm dead in my sin. 
So if you're dead in your sin, doesn't that mean you're then a prisoner? You're a prisoner of that sin? You're a prisoner? Could that be the connection there? That, that is a possible way to interpret this. Um, other places like Romans 6 talk about being slaves to unrighteousness. And it's not the way that Peter often talks about it. And that's what makes this tricky is, is that the way Peter is talking about it? It's harder to be sure. But the idea of being dead and the idea of being a prisoner are both ideas used other places to talk about being separated from God. I'd like to mention uh, something potentially both ways. Remember in Second Peter, it talks about the fallen angels committed to pits of darkness. And you have the idea of contain them and, and keep them there, that type of thing. Uh, but it is interesting that right after he talks about the spirits in prison that who were once disobedient in the days of Noah, then he talks about during the time of the ark wherein eight souls were saved. Now, soul is different than spirit, uh, and but it's kind of interesting. You got souls being saved and spirits in prison. That's interesting. Go ahead, Stephen. I'll also just mention one other thing. I almost added this to my chart, but I'm just not sure about it. If Peter does have in view what he mentions in Second Peter two verse four, the angels that were cast into were chained in gloomy darkness for awaiting judgment. I don't know if they may also be in view here. If Genesis six is talking about heavenly beings sinning with human women, they could be included in the spirits in prison that Noah is preaching against this ungodly behavior that's going on both with people in the world and with perhaps angelic beings participating in that sin. That is something that is not, not out of the realm of possibility, but it's hard to nail down. I want to just say that I, I don't have any more material on my charts here. Whatever the spirits in prison is talking about, Peter is very clear here about baptism. This is one yes. of the clearest passages in the New Testament about the connection between salvation and baptism. Noah and his family were brought safely through the water. And I think it's interesting here that the word when it says brought safely through is the ESV and the end of verse 20, 1 Peter 3.20. The word is literally saved through. It's, it's the word for saved and a preposition stuck together. But they were saved through water. And then in the very next verse, in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And how, how much clearer could he be in saying that baptism is the point at which God saves us? And he's clear here that it's not dirt getting on your physical, getting dirt off of your physical body. But it's your conscience crying out to God. It's his appeal to God for a good conscience. It's the power is in the resurrection of Jesus. But baptism is where we're saved. That, that's the moment that God washes away our sin, that ties in. That's what Paul or Saul at the time was told. Why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It ties together with this picture of a flood or of water washing away the ungodliness, washing away the sin in our life. And the things that are unclear in this text, we can debate, but 
that is something that's clear from this text is that baptism is connected with our salvation. Right. And we're not in the days of Noah, we're now. And, and, and so we're on the, the like figure point to baptism does now save you. Right. Uh, years ago, I heard about a lady, uh, the story was told anyway, a preacher was talking to this lady and discussing baptism. And she said, that's not in my Bible. He said, well, yes, ma'am, it is. He said, no, it's not. Said, yes, ma'am, it is. You know, if you'll get your Bible, I'll show it to you. She said, it's not in there. She handed him her Bible. He opened up to First Peter, and she had taken scissors and cut verse 21 out. Wow. She meant it when she said, it's not in my Bible. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, Lori comments in here, um, perhaps it might also be, it might be a providential thing that this is hard. Unclear text is married to the very clear explanation about baptism, the thing that now saves us. Maybe it's good that we need to spend some time with this little passage, puzzling, uh, puzzling it out and thinking about the meaning. Um, and I think that's right. Um, like, like what Stephen and Scott have been saying, we don't want to minimize the, the text, but ultimately the spirits in prison they, they don't directly affect me or you or any of us, but who the spirits in prison are, what exactly happened. The, the point of this and the point of all of First Peter and the point of the gospel is that we, Jesus suffered for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God. And we also will have to suffer for Jesus um, to attain to that righteousness. And that's accessed, like, like Stephen and others have been saying, um, through this baptism. Um, there. And then TJ also says, which I think is helpful in, in thinking about some difficult texts um, and some things that don't make a lot of sense, um, reminding us back in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, um, but those that are revealed um, belong to us. Um, if it's not been completely revealed, maybe we just don't really need to know exactly what's going on with it. And I think that's helpful in uh, thinking about sometimes. All right. Um, any other comments that you guys have or, or anything you want to close with? All right, we're uh, to our time now. Thank you guys for your uh, participation and for the audience questions. Um, we do want to invite you all, if you have any other questions or further Bible texts that are difficult or maybe some further explanation you'd like on First Peter 3, um, we'd be happy to get together with you. Um, one good thing that's come from our circumstances is uh, all of us are home and have access to computers and we can uh, meet with people no matter where you are and talk uh, sort of face-to-face -face via online. So if you'd like to study together, um, you could uh, reach out to us. Uh, you can go to BibleQuest.tv and send us a message to do that or submit any other questions or Bible text you'd like us to go through uh, on our live broadcast. Um, so with that, we hope you all have a good and safe week this week, and we'll look forward to seeing you all next Tuesday at 2 p.m., Lord willing. Thank you.